Hello there and welcome to Defiance. I'm your host Peter McCormack and today I have an interview with Sheldon Thomas, a former gang member who founded Gangsline, a non-profit organisation that provides help and support to young people involved in gang culture. The rise of knife crime in the UK and particularly in London is regularly in the press and barely a day goes by without reports of another stabbing or murder. And this is something I have taken an interest in recently and I reached out to Sheldon as I wanted to learn more about the issue and discuss the history of gang culture in the UK, if the problem is getting worse and what can be done to combat this growing problem. There are times in the interview where Sheldon does put blames on the colonial past and the mistreatment of black people, including slavery in the US. Now this is an area where I do have gaps in my knowledge, so I did avoid debating this in too much detail, but I will at some point start researching this. I am though going to continue looking at knife crime in the UK and I've just returned from Scotland where I've conducted two interviews, one with a former policeman and one with a surgeon, looking at different strategies for one for dealing with knife crime, but also the impact that it can have on victims. But before we get into the interview, I do need to thank my sponsor Kraken, the best place to buy Bitcoin. Consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange, Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. Are you a Bitcoiner? If not, and you would like to learn more about Bitcoin, then please do check out my other show, What Bitcoin Did, which Kraken also sponsors. Bitcoin is a decentralized peer-to-peer digital currency without any central authority. By not having any controlling party required to validate transactions, Bitcoin is both trustless and permissionless. It is an opt-out of government fuckery. And as Edward Snowden said, Bitcoin is freedom. Find out more at kraken.com, which is K-R-A-K-E-N.com. Also, if you are enjoying Defiance and you want to support the show, there's a number of things you can do. You can leave me a review on iTunes and subscribe to the show. You can follow me on social media at Peter McCormack and you can share it out with your friends and family. The reason why we fight is to draw attention to issues and to fix it. Resilient, resolute, defiant in the face of impossible odds. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction, and all you can talk about is money. Hundreds of protesters turned out singing Glory to Hong Kong, an anthem of defiance. Good afternoon, Sheldon. Good afternoon. Thank you for agreeing to do this, coming to my town of Bedford. Really appreciate your time. I've been spending the last, I would say, two weeks now researching UK knife crime, something I've had a... You know, something I've obviously been aware of is a major problem, but seems to be a growing problem. And I'm going to be doing a few interviews based around this now. And as I said to you in the prayer pile, every time I, every time I look up knife crime, your name comes up, and I've seen a bunch of videos with you. So there's a lot to unpack here. But I think just for the sake of the audience, let's dive into your background. You know, you're an ex-gang member. Talk to me about. Yeah, talk, talk to me about your background and then we'll dive into the issues. No worries. Um, for those who don't know me, I grew up in the 60s to two Jamaican parents who came over looking, or should I say, they would come over to England to get a better life. And they didn't realise actually they were just being manipulated by colonialism. So... My parents came to England looking for a good life, but what they found wasn't exactly what they were looking for. My mum, before she met my dad, saw a sign that says no blacks, no dogs and no Irish. She was a bit disturbed by it because her friend told her that everything was going good because her friend had, her friend had gone to 
had come to England two or three years previous to that and was trying to make out, oh, it's really great here. And actually her friend lied. It wasn't great here. But I won't go into that today because that wasn't, today's not about colonialism or slavery. It's, it's about the gangs. How I came into it, obviously, born in the 60s, grew up. My first experience was when I was nine years old in 1974. I went across the road to the park. All of us wanted to be like Pele. Um, for us, the best football in the world was never a white person. It was always a black person. It was always Pele for us or Jarzinho um, or Garincha. We, we all wanted to be them. Um, we didn't support England. We all supported Brazil, which was really strange. And we were only nine years old. Anyway, on the way across the road, a car pulled up. It was a police car. They wind the window down. And if my memory serves me right, I think they either called me a gollywog or a coon. That was the very first time I had heard those words. How old were you? Nine. Okay. I then ran back across the road to my mum but this is why I mentioned colonialism my mum took the side of the police and said what did I do to offend them and that broke me I was only nine I was hurt I didn't know what my mum was trying to say I'm nine years old what on earth could a nine-year-old say to a police officer that would make him call him a gollywog or a coon anyway as time went on, the National Front got involved. We were chased. We were intimidated by police officers, bullied by police officers. Every name that you could think of, they called us. Jungle Bunny, Swing in the Trees, Go Back to Africa, you know. So if it wasn't the police, it was the National Front. If it weren't the National Front, it was the police. And for those who don't know who the National Front are... Um, it's what you would call EDL today or what you would call the British National Party today. Um, you know, it's, it's a party that believes in white supremacy. And again, I'm a young kid. But I weren't getting any support at home. I weren't getting any love at home. And I resented being at home. I resented it badly. I felt... Even though I know my mum and dad had a hard time because they were black and you're in a mainly white country and they're trying to make ends meet and we're all poor, we ain't got no money and my mum's got kids and she's got to get two jobs, my dad's got to get two jobs. I, 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 as a young man, I didn't know that because I'm nine, I'm 10, I'm 11. You don't, you're not sitting there thinking, oh, my mum hasn't got time to hug me. My mum, you don't think like that. You understand? So mm -hmm. for me... I don't feel I was, I felt I was in no man's land. I felt I weren't wanted at home and I felt I weren't wanted in Britain because everywhere I went, people were calling me names. That's when I had enough. And I decided that I'm not going to walk streets on my own anymore. I'm going to get a gang. I didn't, we didn't call it a gang, by the way. We, we, we kept away from the African-American terminology we stayed with the Jamaican terminology because all of us were Jamaicans, yeah, born to Jamaican parents. So we used the word posse. Posse, and now some people's gonna be like, what? Posse, what's that? Well, basically, in Jamaica, most Jamaicans who had a TV, 
used to watch Clint Eastwood. And we loved Clint Eastwood. And in those films, they were called spaghetti movies. And in those films, they would use the word posse. So anytime the sheriff was after somebody, he would say, come on, let's get the posse. That's why a lot of Jamaicans in the early days never used the word gang, but used the word posse. Because we loved Clint Eastwood. We loved the Western movie. We loved the shooting up. And that's where we got it from. When you watch the film, How Did They Come? Jimmy Cliff, who acts in that film, is watching a Western movie before he goes out and buy a gun. Wow, I didn't know that. And there yeah. was a, um, a hip-hop band, London Posse. Yeah, there's a gang, um, sorry, a group called the London Posse as well. How's Life in London? Yeah. And so we, we tend to take, most of us at that time tend to use Jamaican slang because we wanted to represent Jamaica. Uh-huh. Now, and is that to give yourself an identity that isn't British because yeah. you're so fed up with... We, we, we wanted to grab an identity. We, we, we wanted to grab what was black. So Jamaican Africa to us was black. Uh-huh. You understand? So for us was, we just wanted to get away from anything that was Western. So the word gang is Western. So we just said, no, we don't want that. We're going to use posse. And that's when I think my life went downhill. I think when you don't feel loved, when you don't feel wanted by anybody, you're a young kid. You're going through hormone changes because when you're between the age of 10 to 15, your body changes internally. And some people get bumps on their forehead. Some people get hackney and all of that stuff. Some people go through different different levels. I, f- I went through the anger level and um, I became a nasty guy. I hated everyone. Anyone that wasn't black, I hated And I decided that any white person that calls me a name, I was going to kill. My whole motive in life was kill the white man. Because when we learn learn what we learn about slavery and colonialism, and then to come to England and still to be treated as if we're slaves was too much. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think the worst part was that my mum accepted it. My mum and dad accepted, keep your head down, don't say nothing. If they call you a gollywog, don't say nothing, keep your head down. And it hurt me. Mm -hmm. So how we started as a gang and how many gangs started, you will find started in the same way. Bloods and the Crips all started fighting racism. But when you first started... You're a group of mates, right? Yeah. Just a group of friends hanging around. When did that stop being a group of mates and started to venture into what you would say is criminal activity? The minute we attacked police. Okay. And I remember the first time we attacked the police. We were sitting on the bus. The bus conductor came up. We went to pay the fare. And we were making jokes in Jamaican slang. And a police officer was on the bus. He came up to us and said, why don't you blackies speak bloody English, mate? And that was the first time we decided enough's enough. I think at that time I was 12. I kicked him down the stairs and obviously kicked him off the bus while the bus was moving. Realised what I had done because I, 
he, he, he rolled on the... And cars just missed knocking, going over his head. Before we know it, we ran off the bus. All hell broke loose. And I say, for us, that was the, the time we turned. We turned from just walking in a pack into now striking out against police brutality. And for me, that's when we became criminal. Now, some people would say, you were just because they called you all these names, they were brutalising, they were intimidating you. But we just got more angry. And then, 1977 happened. 1977, the National Front decided to march in Lewisham. And we just said, we're not allowing it. We went down there, 13 then, and all hell broke loose. And then from then, we started to do sabotage. So we would leave from Brixton and go to Helton. That was where the headquarters of the National Front was at the time. Throw bricks through the window. When police officers drove past in, in Brixton, we'd smash up the windows. And we started to turn. And so we started to be known as a gang that would confront white people, even though they were like seven years older than us. Right? So most of the National Front guys, they were 19. We were young kids. We were like 12, 13. But there were a lot of us. My gang had 25 men deep. It was, we, I was big. And so we started to get a reputation of fighting police officers, fighting the National Front, a real reputation. So by the time 1980 had come, when Bristol then burnt, was burnt to the ground, our reputation exceeded because people were like, yeah, them man there, let's go and get them because like, they're not scared of no one, you know what I'm saying? So when you look at the footage of the Brixton riots, you'll see my gang is at the front and we're kids, we're not adults, we're like, kids and the adults were behind us so I think for us we had a violent reputation but things got worse because drugs got involved okay now so taking or dealing or both both so what happened was as we were fighting police officers we were getting arrested obviously yeah some of us were being charged some of us were being were, were going to Ballstall. There was no Youth Offending Institute. Then it was called Ballstall. Yeah. And then them lot were like, ah, oh, this is long, man. Like, they, they didn't use those words, but I'm just using it because yeah. of today's phrases, yeah? Like, they were like, ah, oh, this is long. So, like, ah, oh, it's long, man. Let's make some money, yeah? So I'm like, how? They are like, ah, oh, let's sell drugs. I weren't really keen on it because I weren't. A, I used to call it the white man's drug because I used to say that the white man wants you to be slow in your thinking. So I used to say to them, like, like, let's not get involved, but they got involved. And basically what happened was the turning point for us as black kids. And the turning point was we then began to associate with the Jamaican criminals who were on the run from the DEA in, in America. Because at that time, the crack cocaine market was controlled by the Jamaicans, not 
by the Mexican cartels as people like people to believe. The Mexicans and the Colombians were still fairly new. And they hadn't, they weren't dealing in crack cocaine. What they used to do is bring the drugs into America, but they didn't want to really distribute it. So they would get the locals, which were the Jamaicans or African Americans. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so what people don't realize is that the Jamaicans were controlling the crack cocaine inland. And so the DEA didn't like the Jamaicans because the Jamaicans didn't do things like the mafia. The Jamaicans would spray, like, so for instance, say, for instance, you hold that that Jamaican gang money, so like the shower posse, yeah? And they came to the club looking for you. Now, unlike the mafia, they would kidnap you, drive you to some location and you'd never be seen again. Jamaicans don't do that. We did, we go into the club and we shoot everybody. So everyone gets shot. Do you understand? So that was causing mayhem in, in the eight, early 80s, between 1980 and 87 in America, because the Jamaicans would shoot everyone. They wouldn't just go in there and say, yeah, yo, brethren, come. But you, when you say we, you mean we as Jamaicans, not... No, we including myself included. So like, not me personally, because I, I, like I said, I didn't get involved. But my crew, yeah, my crew is involved in that. Like we shoot up dances all the time, like enough time. Like you, you, you didn't see the, the the sophistication of the mafia is different to the sophistication of the Jamaicans. The word is everybody for dead. Do you understand? Uh -huh. So how we look at it is everybody dead. We don't go in and say, yeah, let's wait for him to come out. Let's go. There's none of that. And that's what I think the DEA didn't like the Jamaicans because the Jamaicans would shoot the whole neighbourhood. So, for instance, if they knew you lived in this house, they'd shoot all of the houses. So, the DEA wanted to get rid of the Jamaicans badly. So, what the Jamaicans found is that they were getting cornered, yeah? Mm -hmm. So, they used the African-Americans against the Jamaicans because they wanted, to, they wanted order. Let me just put it that way. The Americans wanted order. So, when they went to the mafia, the mafia said, we don't want nothing to do with it because the mafia don't want to start up that shooting again. They did that 50 years previous. So, they had to figure out a way how, how we're going to get rid of these Jamaicans because they're killing everybody. And so, obviously, that's when, yeah, I don't know if you've heard the saying that the CIA and the FBI all brought the drugs into the African-American areas. And that's how the Jamaicans decided to leave from America and come to England. Okay. And when they came to England, they needed an army of people to work with them. Right. And so when your gang started... Working with them. Working with them, get involved in the drugs... Was there like a focus change? You know, yeah. did it switch from being a fuck we, the police and now yeah. let's make money? Yeah, it it did badly. Yeah, I wanted to fight the police continuous, and I got arrested obviously quite a lot of times. But the rest of my crew, not all of them, they just didn't want to. But I knew it wasn't going to end well because being of Jamaican heritage and the way we think can be, I was trying to explain to them, and I, I most probably didn't explain it right, was 
we're going to turn against ourselves. So we began to self-destruct. So what started off as a partnership between the Jamaicans who were born in Jamaica and the Jamaicans born here in Britain ended with the black British born of Jamaican parents in Britain turning against the Jamaicans. Because obviously, when, when, we, when we were young, we weren't making the money. It was the Jamaicans making the money. And we wanted a piece of the action. But we weren't old enough. Like, we're 14. Like, you know, we're 14. Like, these guys were in their 20s. So, as we got older, we got more bolder. So, we started to get guns. And once we started to get guns, we started shooting up places. Do you understand what I'm saying? Uh-huh. Where I come into it was... I was seen as the enforcer. So for those who don't know what a for- enforcer is, it's somebody... Like in ice hockey. A, 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 well, an enforcer is somebody for ire. Yeah. They hide you out to go and hurt somebody. You understand? That's what enforcer does. So you were, you were yeah. a nasty bastard. Yeah, I was. I wasn't nice at all. And so they would call me, because my whole thing of life was violence. Remember, I'm an angry guy. You know, I've been brutalized by the police the national front so i had a lot of anger and rage already in me i didn't need any more so when they people will say yeah that gang man i don't like the way they're coming in on our little territory man i need you to go on you know what i'm saying so i'll go and get my baseball bat and the first gang that i beat up was the peckham gang okay i had a bad reputation by then so i would the guy who was leading them I broke his kneecaps with the with the bat and then my friend took the gun butt and butted him in his head several times just to make it known that we're, we're not to be messed with. And most people didn't want to mess with us because we're from Brixton. And at that time, Brixton was seen as the capital of the black community. It was seen as the most aggressive. It was seen as the, the drug end of the, you know, this is it, this is the spot. It's like Arlen back in the days. Bronx or Brooklyn or Kingston or or you know it's it's known back then not now back then it was known as don't mess with guys from Brixton and that's where we were from yeah now all of this was mixed in with sound system for those who don't know what a sound system is is big speakers a thousand watts each pumping out heavy reggae bass in a dance nightclub with about 3,000 people in it. The, the place is filled with ganja smoke and it's dark. And so mixed in with this dance hall scene, which today they call Bashmen, were gunmen, us. So there was a mixture of gunmen, dance hall, in these places every week. And every week we would shoot up the place. So you would go to the dance and because you're the rival gang to that gang and you're trying to make money in their area, we'll go to the dance and shoot the whole dance up. Does that make sense? Now, for those people who don't understand what I'm trying to say is that in the early days, all the gang violence took place in the dance halls. So in the music venues, uh-huh. because the rival gangs, we loved reggae music. So rival gangs will go to their favorite spot 
And it was easy to find them. Does that make sense? It's not like today. Today's trap house. Yeah. Yeah. There was no trap house back then. What they had, well, there was, but it was women's houses. It weren't trap houses like it is today. So what you have is that mixed with each gang in each area is a sound system. That sound system would have a gang link to it. So it's like West Ham Football Club is linked to the ICF, the intercity firm, which is their football hooligans. The Arsenal are linked to the Gooners. Tottenham is linked to the Yids. Chelsea is Lids is linked to the Chelsea Edhunters. These are their hooligans that are linked to the football club. So it was the same with sound system in the black community. Each sound system was linked to a gang. And each gang was linked to the Jamaicans. And each Jamaican was linked to the people that brought the drugs in. Because this is where the misconception came. People thought the Jamaicans brought the drugs into England. They didn't. Just like they didn't do it in America. The people who brought the drugs into America were the Colombians, Pablo Escobar at that time, and the Mexicans. No Jamaicans bought drugs in. They sold it. So the cartels will sell the drugs to the Jamaicans and the Jamaicans distributed it. It's the same here. Here, it was the white crime families that brought the drugs in, but they got the Jamaicans to sell it. But the newspapers wanted you or the rest of the world to believe the Jamaicans brought the drugs in. And that was never the case. And how old were you at this point? 14. He's 14. And you're kneecapping people at 14. I was doing it before that, actually, to be okay. honest. Yeah. I, I, so I started using the baseball bat when I was about 12. I wouldn't say I was kneecapping at 12, but I was breaking jaws at 12 quite easily. What age were you when you left the gang scene? I would say I would be 21 when I left. All right. So, so young adult. So, what happened in the period from like 14 to 21? Nine of my friends were shot dead. Nine were shot dead? Yeah, okay. last, the last one was shot 57 times. I've been shot at, I'd say about 20 times in that time period of 10 years, because I was in the gang for 10 years, 1976 to 1986. Shot, shot at quite a few times during that time period by my own people, not by the National Front, not by police officers, uh-huh. by my own people. And did you end up, were you ever ended up in jail? No, I was on remand quite a lot of times. Okay. okay. Yeah. So towards the end, you know, you're like 19, 20 years old. What's going on with the gang then? Is it just, is it? No, I, I, I'm leaving because let me tell you what happened to me. Yeah. Basically, the, the rival gang came looking for me in a nightclub in East London. There's about 3,000 people in the dance. Again, another dance or what you call bashment today. And four of them came in in ski mask, walked over to where I was, started shooting. For some strange reason, four of them missed and blew the guy's head off next to me. And it was at that turning point that I decided I don't want no part of this. And it was then I was, I said, enough's enough, I'm, I'm, I'm heading out. So when that incident happened... I don't think I was too much in it then, but I had a reputation. Do you know what I'm saying? And when you have a reputation, you always have people that would want to test your reputation. And so 
When that guy got his head blown off, I took that as an opportunity to kind of really step out from it because I signed up to fight police officers. I signed up to fight the National Front. I signed up to fight injustice. And I didn't mind if I went to jail for any of that. But then I thought, I'm not going to go to jail for killing a black man. That doesn't make no sense to me. At the time, I enjoyed beating up black man. At the time, because... The anger, frustration, and I enjoyed violence. But then when the shooting started, and we were all part of it, especially when my boys went down and shot up the uh, a club, I was like, I don't know if we, you know, I used to say to them, I, I don't think this is this is what we're about. We, we're not supposed to be killing ourselves. You know what I'm saying? Like, why are we killing ourselves? Like, what's happening? Here? Like, I got confused. Do you know okay. what I'm saying? And yeah. so for me... I would already got confused when the when we started sh um, shooting bullets. When we started shooting bullets, I got confused back then. But you know, how can I, I how can I put it? Um, I loved the reputation. I think that was what it is. It kept me in. I loved the reputation because it gave you identity. Yeah, I loved the reputation of hurting people. I loved the reputation of people kind of respecting me because I didn't have no respect at home. I love the reputation of having people around because I didn't have no one around at home. Even though I had five brothers, we were just not close. And so for me, it was like real important that I stayed in, even though during the 10 years, none of my friends were shot dead. So we're, um, yeah, we're a good 30 years on from then. And we have a very recent, seems to be escalating gang and crime problem in London, across the UK. I mean, it's London, it's the UK, you know, it's different parts of the country. But And there's a lot to unpack and discuss about it. And you, obviously, you're very much involved now in trying to make things better. But how similar or different is it now from back in the 80s? What are the main differences now? The main differences now is that I would say young kids involved, I'm going to speak from one from London, then outside of London. In London, young black kids don't hear the word gollywog, coon, sambo, nigger from the police. They don't hear that. We've moved on from that. They've moved on from that. The police don't do that. The difference is there is no difference because what we created in the 70s and 80s, which was rivalry, has got worse. The difference between back in our days, we sold our own drugs. We didn't ask a 10-year-old to sell drugs for us. We didn't groom children. We didn't exploit girls. Because back then, there was a code. The code was, if you was known for raping women, you wouldn't see out the week. Because the crime families did not like anyone that abused kids or girls. They didn't like that. So... You knew if you went to jail and they found out that you exploited some girl, you'd be lucky if you saw the week out. So many of us had a moral code in the 70s and 80s. And I know people listening to that will say, how does a gang member have moral code? Well, the, the, it's quite straightforward. It's most of us in London who were black kids at the, you know, involved at that time were from a Christian household. And we believed... You didn't commit a crime on a Sunday because God will strike you down. 
we believe that you didn't rape women because, you know, you'll get killed. We didn't believe in grooming children. Those things just didn't enter our brain. Everything we done, we did it ourselves. When somebody said to me, I need you to hurt that guy down there, I didn't go and get some 12-year-old to go and do that. I did it myself. You know what I'm saying? So I think the difference is age group. I think the difference is they're not impacted outwardly by racism. They're impacted inwardly, which is systematic. So it's a different form of racism. I think the difference as well is that guns and knives are easy to access, whereas it was difficult for me to get a gun. Very difficult. Because many of the older gang members didn't want to give a 14-year-old a gun. You understand? Mm -hmm. So it took a long time for us to get our guns. You know, you know, with 15, 16, that kind of age group. And not all of us wanted guns. You know what I mean? We, like, for instance, in my gang... I only had a gun to show off, not to particularly say I'm going to shoot somebody. You understand? So it wasn't even my gun. You know, I grabbed one of them lots of just to just to kind of create an image. So for me, what's different today is the access is so easy for young kids to get guns. Knives, obviously, is easy to get. The age group is younger. Um, the older guys getting young kids to do their dirty work for them. They don't do dirt. These older kids don't do dirt. We did dirt. You understand? We we did our own. You understand? When my boys went to jail, they went to jail for something they did. You know what I'm saying? They didn't get some 14-year-old to go jail on their behalf. So that I think that's what's changed. There's no morals. There's no respect. They, dis- they disrespect girls completely. They are completely different to us. And I think I would say they're more angry than we were. And I guess one of the, or a couple of the key similarities is that these gangs now and then were bred from an underclass and also the lack of love and attention and parental attention is a consistent problem. 100%. I think when you look at gangs as a whole today, in the early days, I would say poverty played a significant part, no doubt. But I would say today, when you look at gangs, apart from maybe London and Birmingham, where it's mainly black kids and Asians, across the whole of UK, it's all white. And when you look at the kids that are involved, every kid, whether they be rich or poor, black or white, you will notice one thing, they are not loved at home. You will notice that. You, when you sit down and ask about their relationship with their mums, with their dads, most of them tell you, I don't even know where my dad is. Or uh, the last time I saw my dad, I was three. He's now 13. Do you understand? That's what it's like. And what's more alarming is that when you hear them talk, some of them would even say, I don't even know if my mum loves me. Now, 50 years ago, that was unheard of. Most kids will tell you, my mum loves me. Today, it's not like that. And that's what I think is the difference. The difference is, I could honestly put my hand and say now, my mum and dad had a reasonable excuse as to why they were in their situation. Reasonable, in the sense of, grew up in colonialism, they weren't loved, they don't know how to give love. You could get, you can get the picture Obviously, but when you're a child, you don't know that. Because yeah. it's not like your mum sits you down and says, this is, this is it. 
today, I think we've allowed the world to take over our lives to the point where we disregard our children. And I think that is the downfall of why we're in this mess today. I know some people will disagree because they're going to say, oh, but if you don't live in a nice area, it won't make a difference because you can live in a horrible area. But if you love your children and you make your children know that you love them, your children wouldn't want to hurt you. But when you grow up like me or like many of the kids who don't feel loved, who didn't feel loved, you don't care whether you hurt your mum or dad. Well, so I, you know, during my research, I was reading and, you know, listening to interviews where people explaining not only are some of these kids in a in a home without a father, they are violent and disrespectful to their mother. Yeah. And the mothers have no control. And some of the mothers want them out. A hundred percent. And those are the things that have changed dramatically in the society because we're not looking at what's important. I learned a long time ago through my own children, that if I'm not going to change, they're gone. End of story. My daughter didn't mince her mouth. She didn't mince anything. You either fix up that or, you know, you're gone. And I think that needs to happen. I, I really do. I think that parents need a shake-up, that I think parents need a wake-up call because we are the ones that are put... If your child goes out and stabs somebody, how do you blame that on the government? That ain't the government's fault. There is something that's fundamentally wrong in your house that has caused your boy to go and stab somebody. Now, is he being bullied at school? Most probably. If he is, does he feel that he's getting support from mum and dad? Most probably not. So that's why he's taking the law into his own hand. But if he's getting support from mum and dad and he gets the right support from the school, that doesn't make him feel he's the problem. He won't take the knife. It seems to be a problem that's escalated quite rapidly over the last few years. So trying to remember back in this hard, you know, but the last, well, not the last, the first one of these kind of murders that I really remember that stood out was Stephen Lawrence. Now, that was a, a white gang yeah. on a black guy. That was just a racist That was murder. racist murder. We yeah. know who it was, <laughs> mm. you know. And then the next one that really stood out, I think it's 20 years this year, is the Damalola Taylor mm. case. And again, that really, at the time, yeah, I'm sure there were murders before and after, but that one really stood out. I, th I think that's one of the ones where the country kind of stopped. But I still didn't have a picture of UK having a gang problem like you would see in the media in the US the kind of gang problems that you see from the US, and then suddenly it feels like we do have that problem now. It's here, it exists. There are dangerous, very, very dangerous gangs in London. I mean, you can go on YouTube and just see horrendous footage of attacks, gun attacks, knife attacks. We're suddenly here where we actually have this on our doorstep. What do you feel has happened over the last, and it feels like the last five, maybe ten years, that, that of course seems to really escalate? We've always had a gangs problem. For the last 100 years, we've had gangs in this country. 120 years. One of the leading gangs was the Peaky Blinders. Um, and we had gangs in Manchester at the same time. We had the, the biggest gang at that time was in Sheffield. Sheffield had one of the biggest gangs. And at one point, Sheffield was known as the gang capital of the world. People need to understand we've always had a gangs problem. The reason why... 
it wasn't prominent. It's because the media wasn't prominent back then. Media was a middle-class system. It's not there to report about the poor white working class who were the main gang members 100 years ago. So you've got to look at how media works. A hundred years ago, the media is only interested in middle-class whites. It's not interested in working-class whites or poor whites, okay? Look at the media today. They centre their attention on blacks, making everybody believe that all the gangs in the UK are black. But that's a London problem, black gangs. Yeah, but everyone believes that. When you go to Liverpool... Some of the places I've been into in Liverpool, they think all the gangs are black and they go, oh, you've got more gangs than us. No, we don't. Do you understand? Because that's a misconception by the press. And the press always discriminate against people they can find easy to discriminate against. So for me, the reason why gangs in Sheffield 100 years ago weren't seen or heard as prominent as they are today was all media. It's everything to do with media. Mm -hmm. So again, let me give you an example of that. In 1929, we had St. Valentine's Day Massacre, which was done by Al Capone. Yeah? Uh That went around the world. Okay, at the same time period, Sheffield had more gangs than than, than America. But everyone believed that America had more gangs than everyone else because every second there was some media output about shootings and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Whereas in England, the media wasn't interested in Sheffield or Glasgow or Liverpool or Manchester or Birmingham. They weren't interested because they were poor areas. Well, so right now, the the media portrayal is that we have a massive gang problem in London and a problem also in Birmingham... And maybe you hear about the odd thing in Manchester or Liverpool, maybe Nottingham. That's the representation. Doing my research, I obviously found out that you've got gangs in places like Ipswich, yeah. you know, in, 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 in all different communities. I've, I've seen about four lads who, they were making music and they ended up uh, in Ipswich killing a young lad. Yeah, stabbed him right. 15 times. And, and, and I'm thinking, Ipswich? Yeah. Oh, no, there's gangs everywhere. we got gangs in Gloucestershire. So what, what's, you know, what is a fair explanation of the, the spread of gangs and you know, how, what, how is London different from everywhere else? What are the differences? London is different. Uh, 79, maybe 80% of the gangs are black. Okay. okay. A lot of people don't like to hear the truth because they, they, you know, they, they like the blame culture. I'm not interested in blame culture. That's it in a nutshell. Now, let me tell you about London. It's always been like that. The difference was, in my days, you had the National Front. Now, they could be seen as a gang, but they weren't drug dealing. They were taking drugs, but not drug dealing. Then you had the football hooligans, who were also white. And again, they were taking drugs, but not drug dealers. Then you had the black gangs, who were drug dealers and took drugs at the same time and carried weapons. There's a stark difference. Now, the football hooligans and the National Front were not seen as a gang. One was called hooligans and the other was like part of an organisation. So what people need to understand is that the difference is in London, you can say honestly that the gangs are predominantly black and any white kid that's in a gang is in a gang that's predominantly black. There are no white gangs. So you don't have a white gang like you do in Liverpool 
who actually sells, manufactures drugs like they do in Liverpool. You have white gangs that do that. But in London, there are no white gangs. The white gangs are in the black gangs. And it's the black gangs that control. So when you look at the cities that control the county lines today... Four cities control the county lines. You probably explain county lines because that was a new term to me okay. recently. So county lines, it started with the London gangs. Started. Some people would argue and say Birmingham started it, but let's not go into that, right? And basically what happened was they realised there was too many gangs in London and it was saturating. It means you can't really make money. And it also, the killings were getting really ridiculous. Every week... During a five-year period in the 80s, every week a young black kid will be shot dead. Every single week. That never even made press. So what people, gang members, began to realise, look, we're killing each other here and like we're not really making any money, so let's go out into where the white people are because you make more money. And what they've realised is the biggest users of cocaine were white middle class. So what they realised was like, you know, we might as well start selling to them because... One, if you're selling to white middle class, you're unlikely to, you don't need to carry a weapon because they're not going to rob you. Mm -hmm. You understand? Some guy in a nice Mercedes is not going to rob you. of He just wants the cocaine. So that's, that, that in itself made them want to sell drugs more to the white middle class. Good, secondly, good business. Yeah. And secondly, you get a constant flow of money. So from one person alone, you could make easy well over a thousand pounds because they got a thousand pounds to burn. Whereas in London, they don't have a thousand pounds to burn. So it was mathematics. It's quite simple. Let's go out of London, sell to the rich white folks and make money. Now, county lines have been doing that. They've been doing that since I was young. But they obviously didn't come county lines. I call it crunch, yeah? And Birmingham gangs were doing it as well. So we, and I know of the gangs in Birmingham that were doing it. Um, th th those were the only two gangs at that time, London and Birmingham, before Manchester got involved. Manchester was still selling within Manchester. So today, what you have, so a county line is the older gang member aged anywhere between 19 and 30 would go into an area. Now, what they normally do is they normally do it through a girl. So what happens was they started going to clubs where white girls go, yeah? Uh -huh. And they started, because these guys had money, because they're drug dealers and expensive cars, the white girls liked them. You understand? And plus a lot of the white girls at that time liked that kind of bad boy image, black guy sort of thing. And music was changing because more and more white people was listening to more and more black music. So hip-hop, Bashman, all these music began to change the way white kids... So the National Front began to lose membership, began to lose because more and more white kids were like, I love this music because it's rebellious. I love being a part of this. This is, And so more and more white kids got, began to listen to more hip-hop, listen to more. And, and because hip-hop was generally made by mostly black people, it changed the way white people or white girls thought about black guys. And so... These guys were smart. They went to these clubs, groomed these girls, then got the girls to find out, like, tell them where they could sell the drugs up where they lived. So if the girl lived in Wiltshire or the girl lived in Gloucestershire, then from there they will find a house. 
See, that's how the whole thing... And a lot of people don't understand that you can't stop the trap houses unless you stop people taking drugs. You can't. And who who's going to go to the middle-class whites and tell them stop buying drugs? Because yeah. that's the problem we have in the UK. The UK market is driven by middle-class whites. It isn't driven by a bunch of black kids because a bunch of black kids don't have a £1,000 to spend on drugs every single week without fail. Okay, so if we look back at London then, and let's, let's try and give the whole picture. So there's there's gangs all over the country. Yeah. The perception that they're, the majority of gangs are black yeah. is a misconception, yeah. but it is primarily uh, in, London. in London. But you have white guys in these gangs, but they're white guys in black gangs. But yeah. that, what that says to me is there's no real... There's no real identity around race within the gang. There's no, like... I mean, will the gangs ever say, no, you can't be in this because you're a white guy? Never. Never. Let me tell you it's about... So it's more about social class then, and it's just because... No, it's more about money. These black gangs have realised it's all about making money. So if that Asian girl can sell drugs in the college, they will take her. No, I mean, what I'm referring to is the how the people end up in the gangs is to do with social class, where they are, their neighbourhoods. So if there's a white guy in the same neighbourhood that's predominantly black, he can be in the gang. There's no kind of issue around race. No, there's no issue around race. And like I said, but it is to do with money because these kids don't care about colour. Like I said to Mm. you, like, my days... But your day you did, yeah. Yeah, in my days, we would never have a white guy in our gang, ever. That would never happen. But today or last 15 years black kids don't care as long as you can sell them drugs so for instance i was trying to explain to the lo- the government when i did my training because i train a lot of government staff and i was trying to explain to them white kids today don't see color they couldn't get that out of their head i'm saying the people who see color are over 50 these kids who are 14 they don't care if you're black. They they view themselves as black, let alone you telling them. So, for instance, I know of a young kid. He told his mum, oh, my friends are coming over. Is that okay? She said, yeah, no problem. When they knocked at the door, she opened the door. She nearly had heart failure. They were all black. Now, in his head, he didn't say to his mum, my black friends are coming. She said, my, he's my friend. Yeah. Because in his head, he's like, well, I, I don't know what, what, what's... What, what, what. In his head, colour don't matter. So what people need to understand is that how gangs operate from London, the black gangs particularly, or from Birmingham, is they don't care what colour you are, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're fat or skinny, they're the best employees. They are the only employees that don't discriminate. In every arena whether it be the BBC, ITV, whether it be um, some retail company, they all discriminate. Whereas gangs, street gangs, don't discriminate. They don't care what colour you are. If you can sell drugs or you can do fraud, you're in their crew. And just before we dive into the detail on this, 
Um, are all the gangs, criminal gangs, uh, selling drugs, or any of them just gangs which are like you were originally, just a group of people who live on an estate or a certain area who are just hanging out together? And actually, is it wrong to even then class them as a gang? Is it just a group of people hanging out? There's a difference. Yeah. If you are committing an offence, it's a gang. Okay. We were committing an offence. I'm not going to sit here and pretend. We attacked police officers. Mm-hmm. We wanted to, and we wanted to hurt them. So... It's a criminal offence. We can't say it any other way. And what I try to get gangs to understand is if there's more than three of you committing acts of crime together, you are a gang. It doesn't matter whether you say you're a gang or not. If the three of you are committing fraud or the three of you are doing a robbery or the three of you are selling drugs, that means you are a gang because it's more than one. Do you understand? Well, the reason I ask is because in a number of the interviews that I've seen, there are people who are saying... They're not really in a gang, but they're carrying a weapon for protection because they are concerned that if they don't have a weapon on them... That's 100% correct. That's 100% correct. Most of the guys, or young people, should I say, because girls carry knives sometimes, who who are not in a gang, they are correct. Now, let me tell you where, where this has come from. The reason why they're carrying a knife is because most of them don't have any father figure or don't have anybody who can protect them. So they have to protect themselves. That is 100% correct. But they're protecting themselves from the gangs because they don't want to be in the gang. So in order for you... So for instance, at the moment, there's a thing called G-Check where the gang members will roll up to you at a bus stop, tell you to empty your pockets. And if you do, then they're going to take advantage of you. Yeah. Now, what people need to understand is that you don't have to be in a gang to be stabbed. You don't have to be in a gang to be attacked. That's the reason why many young people carry weapons because they feel there's no protection for them. No one can help them. So at the end of the day, they have to protect themselves. That's the reason why. So I would agree with that. That is a total truth that most young people who carry knives, not necessarily in a gang, but they carry it in the fear of the gangs. How much of a misconception is it that this is all kids? You know, this is this is a problem in London, say, affecting all kids. Like, is everyone at risk? Now? Everyone is at risk right now. And that they're at risk from being attacked or being... Both. Okay. From both. both. Okay. Every child in the UK from the age of nine is at risk of either getting caught up in it in terms of selling drugs on behalf of the older gang members or being attacked by gang members, even if they're not in a gang. Everyone's at risk. Black, white, rich or poor, Asian, it doesn't matter. What we have got to understand is the... um, From my days, gangs have changed. We targeted the people we were going to hurt because we knew if you was walking the street with your mum, we're not going to attack you while you're with your mum. Today, they will. If you walk streets with your mum today... And the gang, the rival gang that's after you, they will stab you and stab your mum. But also, even if you're not in a gang, like, so I was uh, watching an interview with the Moped Thieves. Yeah, I remember. And, I mean, a couple of things really stood out to me. One of the questions asked to them was, you know, what do you think of the person, you know, you're attacking, you're stealing, say, the phone from? And the lad was like, oh, I don't care, I've got no heart, I'm heartless, I don't care. I've got to make the money. Is it the peas? Got to make my peas. Yeah. So there was that, and but also, the other thing that uh, really stood out to me with it was that how do I best explain this? 
they seem to have an attitude which I didn't actually believe. It felt like a front. It felt like, oh, are they playing up to the camera? Are they playing up to the guy next to me? I found it very hard to believe that person. Really most, didn't care. most of them play up to the camera. We we all play that. Look, the whole point of being in a gang is that you're hiding who you really are, mm-hmm. which are, in most cases, hurting young boys. Okay, guys who just want a hug, guys who are so angry that dad's not around, but they can't express it. You've got to remember, guys are not good at expressing themselves mm-hmm. because their father's not good at expressing themselves. It's a generational thing that we can't get out of at the moment. It's all about testosterone. It's all about ego. It's all about pride. And so most men hide behind it because we don't know how to express it. So like me, as an example, I didn't know how to express that my mum didn't love me at nine. I'm nine years old. How would I know that? I knew something was wrong when her answer came back and said, what did you do to hurt the police? But I didn't know why I didn't get a hug. I didn't know because I'm just a young child. Mm -hmm. It's the same principle today. Most of the kids that are involved in this life, I'd say 90% of them... um, are scared, unloved, um, emotionally um, traumatized, desensitized to to violence. Yeah, well, that's in my list. Yeah. The desensitization yeah. to violence De- is des- unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. It's, they are decent. That is a fact. A, a compl- also, this complete lack of care for the implications on other people. I, I mean, I saw about the scoring system. Yeah. There's this complete lack of care, and the 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 ability that someone can so easily just attack someone and stick a knife into somebody without seeming to understand the consequences makes me want to ask another question. And I don't know if you've spoken to anyone who has been a perpetrator of, of say, a stabbing, maybe has killed someone or, or maimed them. You know, are they going to bed at night with the vision in them? Or can they just forget about no, it? No, they're not forgetting. Every person that I hurt. I haven't. I didn't forget when I was young. I right. pretended to. I come and I had nothing, but where I go on veteran, nothing. But it's a lie. Listen, let me tell you about men. We lie. We can't even tell the truth when we're hurting. I've only started learning to tell the truth. I've started to learn to tell the truth because I realise you don't get nowhere by by hiding it because what happens it it builds up in you. And then that can either hit you in a way where you become depressed, stressed out, or you commit suicide because the pain that's inside of you. And I've learned that men, and I know a lot of people are not going to like this because they're going to like, you're generalizing. No, I'm not. I don't know of any man that sits and talk about the emotional pain. Most men refuse fuse point blank you go to a guy that's been depressed all weekend and then see him on a monday he'd be like no everything's all right bruv i'm all right you know what i'm saying and that time he's been laid up in bed for two days because he's depressed why because men put on a front just like children and these gang members believe me i know when i speak to them they haven't slept on their head it's ticking over oh i stabbed that guy bruv i wonder if he's dead blood do you know how much times when I broke a man's jawbone with a baseball bat, I sit there thinking, raw. But then when my brethren's come, I'm like, oh, what? go on, brethren. What? Nothing, man. Like, what? I'll do it again, bro. You know what I'm saying? I'm just speaking their language. I never used to speak like that. <laughs> but there's also this thing now that you add into that that throws kind of fuel on the fire, which is social media. You know, the recording. I've seen people videoing other people, videoing them attacking people. 
So the the social media seems to have kind of thrown fuel onto the flame. Oh, yeah, hundred percent. I think social media has made it worse, and the way we use social media has made it worse. I think for us, it's, it's we've got to understand where we're at right now, and where we're at right now, we're dealing with a bunch of guys who have grown up in a certain way because of what whatever the circumstances, who have now taking on this kind of exterior where, you know, I don't want the world to know that I'm in emotional pain. So what I need to do is to hang out with them man there. Don't give no one the impression that I'm, I'm and let them know I'm about it. You know what I'm saying? And if anything happened, I'm just going to join in. So they film and they're like, yeah, go on, give him a kick in, go and do this. And people don't realize, I think a lot of people like, ah, oh, we need to help our young people. What they need to do is teach boys how to be more emotional. And you will find gang violence stop. Why? Because gang members feed on your weaknesses. Gang members feed on that emotional pain. They know what kid is neglected. Do you know? People don't realise these guys may not have a psychology degree, but they have got psychology mindset. These guys can look at a guy and look at a girl and say, yeah, let's, let's, let's go and target them. How real and how good a representation of this kind of life is Top Boy? How good a job did that do? I think Top Boy have done a very good job in the sense of, and Blue Story, I think they've done a very good job in the sense of they have, obviously there's more to come because you could they could do a lot more with the emotional stuff, but I, I put that down to the fact that they don't know how to write that in yet. They they're not ready. They they they're ready for the easy stuff, which is to show the violence. Well, I think I was referring to say the manipulation. You know, the the story that stood out in the most recent season was the young lad living in poverty. Mm. You know, his mum lost her job mm. because she was an immigrant. Yeah, and yeah, yeah I've got, they've got no no fucking money. And that was the, true. That's the, all the gang. Here you go. Yeah. You can do this. You can yeah. earn ten, twenty, fifty yeah, quid. Yeah, yeah. Hundred percent. And he's putting food on the table for his mum. Mm. But he's, you see, what that showed as well was that his mum was unhappy about that. But what it didn't show was that most mums would be happy about that. See, a lot of mums take the money. They take the money because they realise, I'm not working. I can't keep a roof over my head. If my boy can make it, that's cool. So how desperate is the state of poverty for some people? Explain how bad it is today in 2020. I would say poverty is really bad because, as a society, we've run away with ourselves through capitalism. We've, we don't care about our neighbours, number one. Some of us don't even know the name of our neighbours. We care more about how we look than how our neighbours are doing. So the problem in this society around poverty is very bad because we've always had a north and south divide. The south being downwards where London, Birmingham is and north being up where Liverpool is. If you look at the poverty levels between up north and south, up north is 50 times worse than down south. Why? Because from slavery days, the money was coming into South, apart from once when the money went to Bristol and Liverpool due to the slavery. Because the slave trade, the docks, the, the ships would land at Bristol or Liverpool. And that's when they were making money. But then it switched and London started to make the money. And what people need to understand is that when we talk about poverty, the poverty level in Britain is unacceptable 
considering we're supposed to be a first world country, which we're not. We're supposed to be, we're not. I think we're just a little bit above the third world. I think we're second. So I don't think we're a first world country. I think we're a second world country, just above the third world, which is the Caribbean and Africa, considered a third world country. So what people need to understand is that um, poverty does play a part. Now, I'm not going to pretend it don't. But I think the biggest problem we have is lack of love in this country for each other. We don't, we don't care about anyone but ourselves. And so that is reflected in gang members. It's reflected in the way you heard what that person, I don't care, I don't care, I can stab him, I don't care. And it's reflected because adults behave that way. Adults behave in a very selfish uh, manner. So kids picked it up and they follow in it. And for me, when people ask me about poverty, is that until we as a society realise that capitalism, capitalism can benefit everyone and it shouldn't just benefit the guy that works in the bank who's on £16 million a year, um, then we're going to continue to have what we have today, which is violence, which is criminal activity, fraud, bank robberies, all kinds of stuff because people feel done by. I felt done by. I felt, I felt we were manipulated to come here. I felt we were unjustly brutalized when we got here i felt that at no point did anyone in the white community even want to consider hang on a minute let's hear them out i burnt brixton down to the ground and you know what william whitelaw said we were a bunch of criminals he not once thought in his head why would people burn their neighborhood down what do you think children go around burning places down for the sake of burning places down? Not once did William Whitelaw even, even think about answering that question. Why? Because in his head, he's done nothing wrong. He has done nothing wrong. He's not, he, he's perfect. But really, what he has done is divided the country. Because when that happened, three years after that, the miners came in and realised we were telling the truth. Look how the miners were treated. Shut the mines down. Let's shut that down. Let's shut this down. And when the miners realised, that was when Arthur Scargill came and met with us and said, you guys were right. Arthur Scargill, he was the head of the miners. Mm -hmm. thing. He met with us. Not just me, I'm just us as in the black community. And he admitted that this government, which was a conservative party at the time, were deliberately dividing the country using money. So when you look now, you know, you speak to the people in the gangs, you know, you visit the trap houses, you talk to people. Do you have a belief that most majority of the people are just scared kids and they want to get out? And also, what is the different attitudes between, say... The, you've got. It seems to be. It's almost like you've got different groups. You've got the the very young ones, ten to twelve. Then you've got the young teenagers who are like, say, thirteen to sixteen, who appear to be the most violent. If you ask me, maybe that goes up to about eighteen. And then it seems to be like over eighteen, maybe eighteen to maybe mid twenties. They seem to be almost like the bosses of these young ones. And then it's like I don't know what goes above there. I I. I struggled to find any interviews or work with people who seem to be older than, say, 25. What's the kind of different ages and what are their attitudes? 
Well, the ones who are between the ages of uh, 14 to 17 are the most violent. Because they want to make a reputation. Remember, street gangs is about money, drugs and girls. Or money, respect and girls. Whichever way you want to look at it. Sounds like almost like what Scarface said. Yeah. And that's what it's about for them. So when you say who is the most violent, you've hit the nail. When you talk about you're struggling to find somebody above 25 to do interviews with because the people above 25 are the ones that brings the drugs to them. Is it that? Uh, is it also that uh, some of them realise this is bullshit and I want to get out as well? Some of them, a lot of them do. A lot of the older ones obviously do. The problem is if you're in it for over 10 years, it's going to be hard for you to come out. Right, okay. Remember, I was in it for 10 years and I had to get my mind out. But after the guy got shot, it wasn't, I didn't just just leave like that. It takes time because you've got to get your mind out of it. That's where mental health comes into it. So these guys who are over 25 will struggle to come out because they've been in it for so long. The guys who are aged nine going up to 12, you can still turn them around. The problem is, once they're in the presence of the guys that are slightly older, which is the 14, 15, 16, they then play up to them. So when I go to the trap houses and I see that the average age of the guys that I go to is about 13, 14. Mm-hmm. But when I have gone into a trap house and I've seen like a 10-year-old, a young kid that looks very young, he play-ups to the guy that he's with, who's most probably two or three years older. I mean, even at 10, they're a, li- they're a little kid. Not anymore. No. I know a lot of people don't like to hear that, but that's not the case. I don't know why we think that. We're in a world that is dominated by social media. We're in a world that are telling children, carry a weapon. We're in a world that tells children to rape girls. We're in a world that social media doesn't say, if you are 10 years old, please turn off. Doesn't happen. And so we are not waking up to what our children are listening to. When you ask most parents, do you know the password of your children's social media site? The answer is no. Do you know what your child is doing on social media? No. Do you know if your child is bullying somebody or somebody bullying him or her? No. That's why when I say 10-year-olds are not innocent, I mean what I say. As long as they've got a mobile phone, they cannot be innocent unless you're sitting there watching what they're doing, which most parents don't. But also, isn't there a level of fear? Because, you know, I can't remember the last time I had a fight of any kind, but I, I know I'm I'm careful not to get myself as an adult, even just having a drink in the pub into any kind of situation. Yeah, when I'm walking the streets, yeah, I'm Bedford, I'm fine. But I imagine if I go into London now, there's certain places I'm going to be, if I had to go for work or some reason, I'm going to have to think about it because I don't want to get into any kind of trouble. Are, these people who are carrying weapons seem to be happy to go into a fight where they might get stabbed and killed. Yeah, because not only are they desensitised violence, I've got a picture of a phone of a gang member that I worked with in Liverpool. He's 11 years old. He had a 9mm gun. He was from Crocksteff. And he said to me, I don't care if I live or die. 
But in the meantime, if anybody tries to rob my drugs, I'm shooting them. He was 11. So people need to understand. I know we want to believe that young children are innocent young children. But the social media has corrupted children, have corrupted everyone to the point where people go on social media and just promote anything and these kids watch it and some a lot of the kids believe it so when people talk about what are the age groups who are more likely to be affected is this a uk problem the answer is quite simple it's a uk problem and everyone is affected so everyone should give a fuck and everyone should really care about what's going to happen in the next 10 years yeah, because my language, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for me, it's like I made a documentary in 1991, and I said in that documentary that if we don't deal with this problem now, 91, yeah, before Labour got in, we're gonna have 12 year olds selling drugs. That was a documentary I made. Came out on BBC Two. No one listened. 91. I know what's going to happen. I've been in gangs long enough. I've gone round the world. Well, not round the world, but I've gone to America and Caribbean to know and seen with my own eyes that if the UK doesn't address the problem, we're going to end up like America, which we have. We have a murder every week. Yep. Um, every single week without fail for the last two years. Um, the kids have got younger, which is what I said was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, the county lines have got worse, which is what I said was going to happen. Everything has magnified. Why? Because one, government doesn't want to spend the right amount of money. You know, this is, you're looking at 50 million pounds here over the next five years. Quite simple. Because in order for us to fight this problem, you have to have sustainable amount of money so you can do sustainable amount of work. Secondly, you have to change the way community think. At the moment, when you go to Oldham and you go into these poor white neighbourhoods, most of them believe that ethnic minorities have taken their jobs, which is not true. And that comes because of the message of certain political organisations. So you've got to change the way poor whites think. Secondly, a lot of poor whites, when you speak to them, when I spoke to the gang members from these neighbourhoods, the first thing they say to you is, what else can we do? And what, that guy that had that 9mm gun, he told me that every time his older brother applied for a job, they didn't even answer. In the end, they found out that Crocsteff is, um, there's a postcode ban on Crocsteff. So in other words, if you apply for a job and they know you're from Crocsteff, they won't even answer your letter. It's a Crocsteff estate. Is that the one where the young lad was shot on his That's bike? That's right. Yeah. 100%. Up in Liverpool. Yeah. 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 And so there's discrimination against poor whites by middle class whites. So people need to understand the deepness of this stuff. This is, this is, this is why I keep saying to everybody, you're sitting here trying to pick out who you're going to help. You need to help every child because right now we've got kids growing up thinking certain things you know you've got blacks thinking they're you know they're discriminated against you've got poor whites who believe they're discriminated against then you've got the poor whites who believe that blacks are taking their jobs then you've got the poor whites who 
live off the welfare and have done for 50 years. In other words, granddad lived off the welfare, uncle lived off the welfare. So we as a society have kind of just turned a blind eye to that and don't realise it will come back and it bites us. So I know you have ideas for solving the problems. I know you put forward, didn't you put together a proposal for the government as well? Yeah. Yeah. It's obviously a very complicated problem to solve. I've looked at some of the work they've done up in Scotland, and it seemed to be a multi-agency approach. And also, I think the approach there was to uh, focus it as a health issue. Um, for you, though, and, and I know there's going to be a lot to this, there's probably going to be a long answer, but what is it you're actually trying to fix here? I know that sounds like an obvious question, but what is it you're actually trying to fix? What's the goal here? Societal change. Societal change, mm-hmm. which will lead to... Less pressure for people to join gangs, less gang membership, yep. less violence, yep. and happier kids. Happier kids, more family cohesion. And I'm not saying that the, 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 um, pup, the women and the men have to stay together. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that once you've decided to split, what you should be doing is saying, right, how are we going to make sure our children are not affected by this decision that we have made? Because the biggest problem we have is that the minute that that disagreement happens, the man's the one that normally walks away. I know women do it as well, but mm-hmm. normally it's yeah. the man that does the walking away. So my thing is this. Intervention can't fix this. You can't fix lack of love with an intervention. You can't make someone be a better dad. No, you can't. So in order to do it, this is what I proposed. I proposed back then when I went to Jack's Straw, and I'm going to mention him by name. I said, let me into all the primary schools and secondary schools so that I can educate the children, one, about the gangs, but two, about relationship. Because what I'm trying to get him to understand, if a guy meets a girl and has sex with her, then has a baby, what tends to happen is when the girl phones the guy to say, you know what, I'm pregnant, he puts the phone down and says, well, what are you telling me for? So what, what happens is that child then grows up in an angry way because mum said your dad's a dirty old da, 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 and he grows up, repeats the cycle. So what I was trying to explain to Jack Straw is that in order to break the cycle, you've got to educate them from young because so that, that I'm not saying men will become suddenly great. I'm just saying that for me... You cannot parachute in with an intervention that is actually a societal problem. Intervention can't fix that. You cannot fix, you can't say to Sheldon, oh, you must love your daughter. You've got to show Sheldon how to do that at a very young age so that you grow into that. You don't, you can't say to a 16-year-old now, right, I need to spend more time with you. You've got to do that when they're young so that that way it's a natural part of the family environment. Okay, you're going down this weekend to see your dad. No problem. He knows, she knows, I'm going to see my dad. I'm going to spend the weekend. Not, where's dad? I thought you said dad was coming. Where's dad? I thought you said dad. Do you you understand the point? But this is a thing that I understand. So this is talking about education of, yeah. The very young. You're, you're trying to catch them before... Year five. Yeah, before they get a chance to hit the gangs, which is obviously very interesting, but that's you know, that's something where that will deliver results a few years down the line. Yeah. What about the current problem now? How do you... 
how do you reduce, let's not say eliminate because it's almost a, an unreachable goal. Mm. You want the numbers to go down. That's a starting point. How do you reduce gang membership, uh, knife crime now? Is is this a problem that the police should play a bigger role in? No. It's not a police. I think they should do what Bedfordshire is doing, which is bring somebody like me and start looking at different ways. So at the moment, we're looking to target parents. They've listened because they know that parents are the biggest problem. So you bring somebody in like me who knows what they're talking about. If you want, not immediate results, because I don't think you can get immediate results, but if you want to go in a different direction to what we're going, you've got to bring somebody like me because statutory organisations can't think out of the box. They're not trained to. Because statutory follows that kind of examination route, you know, like, okay, I want to be a social worker, so this is what you've got to do. You've got to pass this exam, and in this exam, it's got certain ways of doing things, yeah? It's like their policy of doing things. Whereas somebody like me, who's outside of statutory, outside of the police, who has been a gang member for 10 years, who is running an organisation that engages gang members, you... I've got to think, well, he must know more than us because he's done. He's a part of all of it and he's now doing this. So for me, it's about every area needs to have a guy like me or a female like me in their multi-agency approach and taking on board what we're saying and not looking at the financial cost of it. Because what happens is people like us, come up with a model that does cost because we're looking at a long-term strategy. So we've got short-term, medium, and long-term plan. Short-term plan is, right, get me to start talking to the gang members. That's short-term. That's easy stuff, right? Then from there, get me to go into all the primary and secondary schools, yeah? So that that way I'm hitting, even if you're not in a gang, I'm still hitting you. You understand? Thirdly, parents. These are the things that we've got to start looking at. How do we get parents? To, well, do it on the parents' evening. Parents evening, for the first hour, you need to come into this session here where we're going to teach you about how your child could be groomed, how your child could be exploited, how your child could be the one exploiting others so that we can teach them. That's what you do. You don't allow parents to walk scot-free from this. You say, right, how can we find? And that's what you do. You say, all right, we've got parents evening coming up. Parents evening starts at five. But we're, we, we're going to start the session at six. When they come at five, we'll give them an hour to walk around. And in the session from six to seven, we're going to talk about stuff that are affecting children today. That's what you do. Now, will that eliminate the problem? No. Would that reduce it? Tiny bit. That's the start. What we then look at are the long-term objectives, which is, okay, train school teachers. Who's going to be the trainer? It's got to be somebody that's lived it. It can't be some ex-police officer. What's that ex-police officer going to say? Yes, well, the stat says this and the mm -hmm. stat says that. An ex-gang member won't be telling you the stat says this and the stat says that. He will say, or she will say, I've seen this. This is what actually happens. And so there's a big difference. So the staff who engages children, so it's primary school teachers, cooks, the Andy man in the school, all should go on a gang's training so that they all can identify 
when things are going wrong and it ain't left to the teacher to take the burden on her or himself. So that's what needs to happen. That's going to cost. Just a bit of a left field question as well that's come to my mind. If somebody's listened to this and they're also a casual user of drugs, are they part of the problem? Yes. Casual users, we're all to blame. You know, if we're smoking drugs, we're all to blame. It's a, in fact, if we're smoking cigarettes, we're all to blame. We've, we've got to understand the biggest killer in the world at the moment in the world is still cigarettes. Some people would argue and say alcohol, but it's still cigarettes. Okay. Drugs is not the biggest killer in the world. That's a fact. So for some people's argument, and I have to agree, why are we making an argument about drugs when actually the biggest killer is cigarettes? So that means we should be arguing against both. But, but there is government campaigns to try and reduce smoking. They're working on that. I'm thinking more specifically for the gangs. You know, if I was a, if, you know, if I was a, a, a taking cocaine or smoking weed, and and the path of that drug to reach me comes through these gangs. Yes, yeah, it's a hundred percent. That's what I'm saying. I do agree that anybody who buys drugs is a part of the problem. There's no doubt about that. What I am trying to say is the economic side of it. We're forgetting about the economics. Everything is about money. Look, the reason why I mentioned cigarettes is that if the, if the biggest killer in the world is cigarettes, but we still sell it, it tells you a lot about the governments of the world, that they're only interested in the money they make off the cigarettes, the tax, yeah? So it's the same principle. Drugs, because it's not known as a killer... They're still oohing and ahhing whether what to do with it. So let's take cocaine out of it. Let's talk about ganja or skunk as they call it today. You know, you've got some people saying let's reduce it to class B. But the skunk that is smoked today is not the same as the ganja that was smoked in my days. No, it's, it's infinitely more str- like powerful and strong. Right. And, and the reason why is because it's manufactured. Yeah. It's not grown like ganja in Jamaica. So the THC level in skunk, is actually more deadly than cocaine. So people, you get hooked on cocaine quite easily, but the damage that skunk does is far more severe than what cocaine can do. Psychological damage, yeah. Yeah. And so when you look at your brain cells, skunk, the THC in the skunk, damages your brain cells, which are unrepairable. See, where I was going with this is that do we need more radical ideas to solve this? So for example... Yeah, I know people who run legal marijuana businesses now out in the US. I know particularly in Boulder in in Colorado. And I've been out there and uh, since the legalization in some states, decriminalization in others, uh, the world has not collapsed. And actually it's now just become like this normal business. You you can go along, they've got uh, the marijuana available as a joint. You can buy the weed to make your own joints. You can buy edibles, you can buy drinks. Mm. It's a professional business. The people who are selling it are trying to sell a quality product. Like market economics has actually made it a, a viable business and that has essentially removed a criminal, a part of crime from society. Now, some of the criminals who may have been involved in marijuana may move to something else. But do we need a more radical approach in the UK? You know, is there a more radical approach to consider the decriminalization or even legalization of some drugs to take that away as a take that away from the criminals as a uh, as a business? Because what it seems to me is that these gangs are businesses. That's what they are. They're they're, they're actually enterprises, and 
it's like the hydra. You take, you chop the head off a snake, another one's going to play. So the only way to really get rid of it is actually to destroy their industry. The problem I have with that is this. In America, as an example, I'm offended by what America's done because it meant exactly what I was telling the University of the West Indies, is that all the West wanted to do from day one was not to outlaw ganja or to outlaw it. And when they realised they couldn't, they said, all right, what we'll do is do what we did in slavery and we'll take over. And all that's happened is for 50 years, they were going on about um, weed, ganja. And now they decided to decriminalise it. Who do you think's making the money from it? It ain't the people in Jamaica. It ain't the people in Trinidad who grows the best ganja. It's the very corporations. And so for me, I think if you're going to legalise it, and the people who indigenously grew it are not making from it, it tells me that you manipulated the whole of it, not you personally, mm. the West, manipulated all of this for their advantage of money again. Because when you look at the economics, I saw a program where they showed all these big factories in America, all run by white corporate people, not run by no black person. So it tells me, for years you saying drugs was bad. Now that you've decriminalised it, you're the one making the money from it and the people in the Caribbean who grew the stuff and you told them for years to burn, the, 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 to burn those fields down, to stop them bringing the drugs in, are now have got no money, nothing to show for it, but you make all the money. So it tells me about the West a lot that everything they do as an agenda and it's all built on lies. Yeah, I mean, that, see, that's a tough one for me to to deal with because I, I almost think there's two separate issues. You know, you've obviously, you're talking here about, uh, you know, you've referred a lot to history of white on black history of abuse. You know, you've talked about slavery when we're in the car on the way and you know, I'm not denying any of this happened. What I'm trying to separate from this is whether there's some big grand master white plan or if there is actually an opportunity here if we can separate ourselves on that and actually say, is there an opportunity for reducing gangs and violence by legalising or decriminalising drugs? Are we able to separate and have that discussion without without referring to whether this is just putting more money in... You can't. You because can't. You, when, you're, when you're talking about decriminalising, who's going to old, who's going to be in charge? Also, what I think I'm getting at is... is are you against it as a as a concept, and therefore, you know, making the assumption that the the ganja would come from the indigenous growers, say from Jamaica? Let's just let's make that assumption that happens. Are you against the principle though of legalizing and decriminalizing drugs as a way of reducing gangs and gang violence? I'm not against the principle of it because obviously, if you can, if you legalize it, and it's it there is a reduction in violence. You can't deny that. But I would say this, for any gang that feels that you've taken the money from them, they will just find something else to do in terms of criminality. What I'm against, and I feel that the West are the biggest manipulators, is they lie. Everything they do is about lying and so that that way, when they do decide to decriminalise it, they make sure they make the money. So it's to me, I'm offended because you've lied for these years. 
You've got what you've wanted, you've decriminalised it, but you're making sure the indigenous population who actually grew it do not make any money from the legalization of it. So basically what you've done is manipulated the world into saying that's really bad. You've got what you've wanted. Like you've changed the story. So like after 20 years, you've decided now, you know what, let's legalize it. Let's get the criminal element out. Let's get the violence out of it. Well, now that you've got what you've wanted, but who's making the money from it? So the question is again about this. It's, look, the best way I can describe it is this. England had 9% of the banana market in the Caribbean. It was kind of like their way of saying, we can't give you money to back for slavery or colonialism, but we'll make sure we buy the bananas from you. Yeah? Mm -hmm. America caught wind of that and threatened England, threatened England, that if you don't stop this deal, it's called unfair trading. They took England to the World Trade Organization. You heard of them. Yeah, the WTO, right? yeah. Right, the committee, to get them to stop buying the bananas from the Caribbean with America already owning 36% of the market. So America took England to court on the grounds that you they were buying 9% from the Caribbean. That's what I'm talking about. The greed of the West. Everything they do is built on a lie. When they took England to court, it wasn't because it's because they wanted all of the market for themselves. They crushed the Jamaica, the Caribbean market to the point of mass unemployment for their for nine percent more of the market when they already had thirty six percent. So it's the same with the ganja, and it's the same with the legalization. I'm wary of when the West talks, what lies behind what they're saying. And everything they do when they talk about decriminalising, oh, you've got all these famous people standing up and saying, oh, if you decriminalise the drugs, uh, there'll be no violence. What is behind what you're saying? Because really, America is proving the point that they're the ones making the money from the gunja now and Jamaica's not making one pence. It's not like they're saying, right, we're going to give 50% of our shares back to the Caribbean. No, they've managed to subject the Caribbean to stop doing drugs. And America now, in their big factories, I've seen 10 factories in America on TV. All these massive gunja plants growing out in, in, in America. So for me... I'm not against decriminalizing in the sense of stopping the violence, but I'm I'm against the ones who make the money, which is always the West. And it's the same with the banana. They come in, force you, and now look how small the Caribbean is. And you're telling me you wanted to take that 9% market from them because you wanted your bananas to go. So in other words, basically, I'm against anything the West says about drugs. Because it's built on a lie. Okay, I mean that's a yeah. I didn't research that. That's a complicated issue to, to go into, and and that's takes us on a tangent. But I would definitely look into that more. Yeah. Something we should discuss further. What about other more radical ideas of engaging with the gangs? So, for example, in El Salvador, I think it's back in two thousand and twelve. There, the government negotiated a truce between. Uh, MS-13 That's and uh, 18th Street, I think it is. I mean, the, it collapsed eventually. But is there any way to engage with the gangs to organise some kind of truce to 
you know, some kind of more radical idea to get the gangs together. I think they did that in Scotland as well. No, no, there is. That yeah. to me is is sound. That's that's. I think that there is. I think mediation, which is what I do, is important. But you have to have the respect of the gangs. That you know, they're not going to listen to you if you're some you know do gooder. So, I think mediation is important. That definitely hundred percent can work. But I think with mediation, you can't just say to the two rival gangs, stop shooting each other or stabbing. You've got to come up with something that's going to make them feel that you're offering them something. Now, some people listen to this be like, why should we offer? Well, if you're telling them to stop something, what are you telling them to replace it with? So if I'm going to stop you from killing each other, I've got to have a sol- something that's going to tell them, what are you going to replace your time with? Because remember... These guys have got time on their hands. And so if we're going to take away that time on their hands, in other words, from killing each other, then we've got to replace it with something for them to do that will occupy their mind. What kind of things? Entrepreneur. Because most street gangs want to make money. Mm -hmm. So I believe that we should be developing these gang members to become legalised businesses on their own, in their own right, and help them to become businessmen or businesswomen or entrepreneurs because these guys want to make money they don't want to work for no one else they want to make money we've got to acknowledge that we've got to stop trying to get kids to go to school or or you know not not go to school but we've got to stop getting kids to think when you go to school you got to go to college from college to university we've got to stop that because not every child wants to do that mm-hmm. we've got to look at these kids and say okay some of these kids don't want to go university. What are we going to do with them? How are we going to avoid those kids who don't want to go university getting involved in the gangs? We've got to find out what makes them tick. When you speak to young people, most of them say the same thing. I want to make money. Well, if that is the case, we've got enough entrepreneurs in the world that could engage these young people on a week-by-week basis, not every single day, to give them the skills, the necessary tools to develop themselves into entrepreneurs. So for me, if I'm going to mediate with a gang, I have to come with an offer of something that's going to replace it. Because if you're sitting there and you've said, right, I'm not going to stab you tomorrow, then the next day comes on and the next day comes on, sooner or later you're going to get bored and like, you know what, I'm not on this thing no more. But if you're occupied doing something that you love doing, the last thing on your mind is violence because you're doing something that you love doing, which is making money. So for me is I think mediation can work, but I think you've got to come with something. Okay. So we should probably have a little talk about gangs line because that's the work you're doing. Mm. Tell people about gangs line, what it, what it is you're doing, the program is. And also, you know, you obviously want support and help in certain ways. Like talk about that. Well, at Gangsland, we do quite a lot of... Well, not a lot of stuff. We do... We'll go to trap houses. We do mediation. We do mentoring. And we do gangs prevention workshops in schools, primary schools, secondary, prus, and colleges. We also train government staff, non-government staff, faith groups, on understanding gang mentality. So we train a lot of those services around the country. We do a lot of training. I do a lot of lectures in university, so I'm a guest lecturer at a lot of universities. So 
you know, they pay me to come in and lecture their students. So it's their criminology students, sociology, psychology students. I kind of do a lot of those lectures across the country on understanding gang mentality. So for us, it's a, it's a struggle because we've got two organisations. One is a charity and the other one is a limited company. The charity, what we're looking to do now is to get a philanthropist or somebody who's got a lot of money because, you know, a lot of philanthropists now want to give to charities and put their names to it. And what we would like is a philanthropist to put their names to the work we're doing because with a philanthropist, he or she is more likely to give a couple of million because they've got it spare, there's no real restrictions. Plus, they're not like the government says, right, I want you to work with this young person. Or they most probably will say something like, here's a couple of million. What we need you to do is to show us how you're spending the money every six months. Have a meeting. Tell us what you're doing. They're more likely to have the kind of less pressurised, let's, you've got to do paperwork. They're more likely to say, get out there. Do what you've got to do. Some people say, you know, like, would ask, why do you want philanthropists? That is the reason why philanthropists, because they are more likely to give, to have millions to spare. They're more likely to keep their, to keep the money flowing for at least a good few years. And they, they don't, they are not interested in numbers. They're interested in you just continuing to do your work. So for me, what I'm hoping to do is get my message out there of societal change get my message out there of who we need to help us and support us in terms of the work. I would like to do more talking because I do a lot of speaking engagements, but I want to do it a lot more around the world now, like I did, I did in, in, in New York and I did it in, um, in the Caribbean. So I want to do a lot more because there's gangs everywhere. It's not just in England and America, it's everywhere. So I want to do a lot more speaking engagements across the world globally because of my kind of knowledge around gangs. So for me, that's what Gangs Line do. That is what we're doing at the moment. Um, we've only got seven staff. We haven't got a lot. I can't afford to employ anybody else anyway because I haven't got any money. And I wouldn't say that we've got the ultimate answer. I wouldn't say that. I would say that if you listen to what I've got to say, I think you would come to the same conclusion that this cannot be done by intervention. I think people would conclude this is a societal problem because everybody can be affected. It's not like, oh no, I can't be affected because I live in Surrey. Everybody can be affected. And so I think it's everyone's duty, parents, non-parents, adult children, young children, to all take up the baton and fight for our next generation of children. That's what I think needs to happen. But I also believe multi-agency approach can work, but not led by enforcement. Has to be led by the community. So I do think multi-agency can work, a bit like what Bedfordshire is doing in terms of getting everyone around the table. I think that definitely can work, but I think it can only work if the people in statutory listen to the people from community who know more than you. They may not say in the nice words and the pretty words, but they know more than statutory. And I think statutory should pay more respect to those 
community organisations or to those organisations and, and, and you, you most probably will see things beginning to slightly change. Okay, and if anyone's listening to this, they want to follow your work, they want to get in touch with you, how do they, uh, how do they find you? Oh, www.gangsline.com. So, you know, it's gangsline.com. You can go on my website, go on the Twitter, go on the Facebook, we're on there. Or, or you can email me, you know, sheldon.thomas at gangsline.com. You can email me. But the most important thing is to realise that gang violence, decriminalising drugs, everyone has an agenda. And when people talk about decriminalising the drugs, be wary of them because what tends to happen is what's happening now. America's making all the money while the Caribbean ain't got no money. It's not like the Americans have turned to the Caribbean and says, right, you can now import the drugs. None of that. So basically, we have to be wary of the message of the West when they say to us or say to anyone, let's de decriminalise. Well, what do you mean by that? Do you mean that in a few years' time when it becomes legal, you're going to make the money? What does that actually look like? Now, a lot of people might be disturbed because they'll be like, why do you want to make money off the drugs? Well, the same way you're making money off cigarettes. The same exact, exact way. So at the end of the day, I'm not a supporter of any of it, but I'm saying if you're going to decriminalise it, then give back to the very people you were stopping in the first place and help them to set it up properly. You could have gone into the Caribbean, put up workshops there. You could have done all of that and allowed them to make some money too. But no, you didn't want that to happen. And to me, that says a lot about the world we're in. All right, man. Well, this was great, Sheldon. Really appreciate you coming here. Really appreciate you doing this. I don't think it'll be the last time we're going to talk. Um, uh, anything I can ever do for you, you've got my details now and you reach out to me. Don't, most definitely. Thank you for listening to Defiance. I do hope you enjoyed this interview with Sheldon Thomas. For me, it was fascinating to get insight into the history of gang culture in the UK, but also hear his take on the problems of knife crime in the UK, You know why people are attracted to the gangs, what are the reasons people end up in gangs, it's issues such as drug dealing or protection, or the breakup of the family and lack of a father figure. It's definitely a complicated subject. There's so much more to research on it. So I will be looking into this more. I will have more shows coming up about this in the future. Also, I need to say a big thanks to my sponsor Kraken, the best place to buy Bitcoin, consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange. Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. Find out more at kraken.com. Also, if you want to support the show, there's a number of things you can do. Please leave me a review on iTunes and subscribe to the show, follow the show on social media, or share it out with your friends and family. If you have any questions about the show, then please feel free to email me on peter at defiance.news. 